This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Among the violence between tribes and the U.S. Army in the early 19th century, outlaws and renegades trampled through the lawless West. Some of these infamous gunslingers were native, Cherokee Bill, Willie Boy, and Henry Laurie. In gangs or riding solo, they pillaged, murdered, and stole from the innocent and rebelled against tyrants and criminals. Native outlaws lived life on the run and left behind only wild tales. Stay with us. We'll share some of their stories after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Daniel Montano in for Antonia Gonzalez. For the first time since it was established 43 years ago, the Federal Emergency Management Agency has developed a strategy to provide better assistance and to better address its responsibilities to federally recognized tribes. In an open letter to tribal leaders, FEMA Administrator Deanne Criswell recognized that tribal nations have been underserved in the past and said a new strategy is, in her words, a significant milestone for improving the agency's relationship with all 574 recognized tribes. The plan includes training for tribal governments, face-to-face consultations on natural disaster and climate change preparedness, resources and funding for hazard mitigation planning, and has earmarked $50 million in grants to help tribes ready themselves for climate change. According to a press release, the new strategy was developed with extensive input from tribal representatives who met with the agency numerous times earlier this year to provide feedback on what exactly they need from the agency. According to research from the National Congress of American Indians, tribes received on average nine times less in disaster recovery grants than other segments of the U.S. and have historically been disproportionately affected by natural disasters. The Navajo Nation is one step closer to legalizing same-sex marriage. A bill sponsored by Delegate Eugene So would repeal the 2005 Diné Marriage Act that banned same-sex unions. The new language extends recognition to all marriages. At their regularly scheduled meeting on August 15th, the Navajo Council's Law and Order Committee passed the resolution. The Navajo Times reports the bill now goes to the Budget and Finance Committee. The Times says the legislation has to pass through that committee and one other before finally reaching the Navajo Nation Council for vote. If passed, it would make the Navajo Nation only the 41st tribe to recognize same-sex marriage. Navajo Nation Pride Program Director Josie Raffalito told committee members the bill is about more than just the right to get married. She said if the measure passes, it would send a clear message of support to LGBTQ plus Navajo citizens, which could help reduce suicide rates. Raffalito says the bill will also guarantee the rights that come along with marriage that are often overlooked in these discussions, such as, quote, the right to be next to our loved ones in the hospital, the right to have access to health care as a spouse, and the right to create a family. The bill was originally set in motion in April, but was pulled for revisions in May. The new bill was introduced in July and is expected to make it through committee to council by the end of the year. As the school year starts around the country, Indian Health Service officials are on a push to encourage parents to vaccinate their children against COVID-19. IHS Chief Medical Officer Loretta Christensen says the vaccine is proven safe and effective for children six months and older. She says some parents remain wary of the vaccine, so it's often up to Native health professionals to address each person's hesitancy. And maybe people are afraid of specific things. You know, you have to really drill that down and see 
what the problem is, what the fear is, and what information might persuade someone to go ahead and get the vaccine. Christensen, who is Navajo, says the risk of hospitalizations is three times higher for Native Americans and Alaska Natives than white populations. IHS says death rates for COVID are almost double. Christensen insists the vaccines are safe with at least 2 million doses distributed to Native people with only minor side effects in most cases. And Christensen says parents shouldn't stop at COVID vaccines. What happened during COVID, we kind of disrupted our normal rhythm of getting the basic vaccinations to our kids, and we certainly don't want them vulnerable to preventable diseases. Christensen says health providers can offer guidance on which types of vaccines are most appropriate for each individual. With National Native News, I'm Daniel Montano. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation, with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. With so many organizations trying to help military veterans, it can be hard to find the right information. So AARP brings together no-charge employment and fraud prevention resources, caregiving tools, discounts, and more at aarp.org slash veterans who support this show. Support by Sanofsky Chambers Law, championing tribal sovereignty and Native American rights since 1976, from opioids litigation to treaty rights to tribal self-governance, with offices in Washington, D.C., New Mexico, California, and Alaska. Sanofsky Chambers Law. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Billy the Kid, Jesse James, Butch Cassidy. These are just some of the names who dominated late 19th century American outlaw history. However, Native and Black outlaws don't share the same limelight for infamy. From Cherokee Bill in Oklahoma to Willie Boy in California, Native outlaws could be dangerous and ruthless. Or they could be more like Henry Lowry in North Carolina, who became a folk hero for defending his people. Some of their stories have made it to Hollywood, including a Cherokee Bill movie in 2021 and an upcoming Jason Momoa film about Willie Boy. Today we'll revisit the stories of Native outlaws and how their legends continue. We'll hear from some historians and experts, but we also want to hear from you. Is there a famous or infamous outlaw in your tribal history? Maybe someone in your family has a story about a run-in with the Apache Kid. We're looking forward to your calls today. 1-800-996-2848 is our number. You can also post a comment on our social media. Our handle is 1-800-99-NATIVE. We're going to learn about a variety of outlaw figures from different parts of Native America today. On the line first in Pembroke, North Carolina is Nancy Fields. She is a director and curator at the Museum of the Southeast American Indian. She is Lumbee. Nancy, you've been a guest on our show before. Welcome back. Thank you so much. I'm honored to be here and, and share this great story. Well, Nancy, let's get into it. Henry Lowry, a Lumbee, led a band of outlaws in Robeson, North Carolina, Robeson County, North Carolina, around the time of the Civil War. What prompted Lowry to become a renegade? Well, uh, I've really, you know, worked hard last night on putting the story together to tell it in a condensed version. Um, there really is a lot that builds up and that just happens, these events just happen to coincide with the Civil War, but it really has a lot to do with 
with the actors and how they capitalized on the Civil War um, during that time frame. Um, and I just want to, you know, I think this is important to kind of keep the story organized since I'm going to tell it pretty quickly. But Henry Barry Lowry, in essence, was a Robin Hood figure. He was a social and racial justice activist, I think, by today's terms. Um, Henry really employed a lot of violence, um, as these outlaws did, right? These were men that were gritty. Um, they used violence to kind of convey <laughs> some really strong messaging. And I say that was a little, that's more nervous laughter than anything, right? A little chuckle because, I mean, some of this stuff was, was hardcore. But also with Henry, um, right at the height of what becomes known as the Lowry War, there was unbridled youth. But just like these other outlaws, a lot of charisma, a lot of cool stuff, a lot of things I think that most society wished that they could carry out but just didn't have that, like, tenacity to do it. And really, uh, the Lowry War, which I'll unpack here real quickly, um, was arced by guerrilla warfare. There were no pageants of war. There was no really rules that were um, kind of contouring the actions that they were doing. They were out to seek vengeance for the murders of, of family members. And um, also, it was a lot of pain, anger, and frustration that had been wielded against Indians of why they were doing the things that they did. Um, so I want to start with a really fast genealogy just to kind of to, to lay the groundwork of who these men were and then set the stage for what's going on here among Native peoples in Robinson County. So I, I use a powder keg analogy when I talk about um, uh, the Lowry family, which uh, actually starting with James Lowry, the first guy that I'm going to talk about is my five times great-grandfather, and moving all the way to through to Alan, who's my four time, or my three times great-grandfather. Um, okay. You know, these men were um, just kind of, I hate to gender this, but like really strong, kind of like man, men's men, right? They didn't back down from anything. James Lowry was part Tuscarora and part white. He comes down uh, into Robinson County from the northern part of the state and settles in among other Native community here, but also the Scottish that were coming in. He was a privileged uh, guy. He worked uh, as an overseer of roads, so he's taking tolls and kind of watching over who's coming and going. And that was a really important role, especially for an Indian person in the late 1700s. After the Revolution and as this concept of race starts shaping up in America. He's sort of like, or in the colonies, he, or in early, young America, he's kind of pushed out of where his his home is and further uh, closer in with the Native community, which was a complete affront to him because, you know, he had contributed to the community. He was a taxpayer. He voted. He had all of these rights that North Carolina was quickly beginning to question and, and put into question and start marginalizing Native people. Moving forward to his son, William, who had fought in the Revolution, also was experiencing this move with his dad and just felt like it was a complete affront to him. And these guys were feeling marginalized and were really upset about it and were trying to push back, but more so through diplomacy and words. And then you have Alan, who ultimately the final straw for him was he was pushed out of a church that he had helped found. And uh, basically they're moving them away from having any sort of interaction with non-Native society and really, not only for the Lowrys, but everybody, really hemming us in further and further into the swamps. And so by the time you get to Henry, um, all of this landed on him and he chose to take a different route. So the analogy is... James was the was the keg itself. Uh, William was the powder. 
Alan was the fuse and Henry was the fire that sparked the explosion. Okay. Um, okay. And so then when yeah, the explosion, he, yeah. I'm sorry. So yeah. Okay. So there was this explosion. Um, and there were, there was a lot of violence. A lot of people died, right? Yeah. So the explosion was that, um, in March of 1865, the home guard, that was a branch of the, um, Confederate army. These are guys that didn't go off to fight, uh, on the battlefields, but were kind of protecting the homelands in the area. Um, and these were some of the same people that these Lowry's had been having issues with in the past and now kind of had this, this sort of deputization boots on the ground to kind of, um, exact the law in, in the area and they overstep their power. They go to Henry, Henry, I'm sorry, they go to Alan Lowry's house in March, and they accuse him of stealing hams and a gold-tipped cane from a neighboring plantation, he and his eldest son, William. Basically, they pinned this on him to be able to take Alan Lowry down, and William as well. And so they give him a short 15-minute trial. They find them guilty, take him back to his home, where actually that day Alan was hosting company. And there was about 15 people there, including his wife and his other children. They forced these two men to dig their own graves, and in front of their family and friends, the home guard executed William and, and Allen. Um, Forty-five men fired upon two men. As this is unfolding, Henry, who had been off with one of, uh, one of the friends that was visiting, walks up on all of this as it's, as it's playing out. And he's kind of obscured behind these sort of bushes on the property. And he makes a split-second decision. If he would have jumped out and tried to save his brother and his father, he certainly would have been executed as well. What he decides to do is hold back, and within a few days, he puts together a gang of Indian men, uh, two runaway slaves named Applewhite and Shoemaker, and two poor white Scottish guys from the neighboring county. And the way I describe it is they kind of organize, and they go out in true Quentin Tarantino fashion <laughs> and execute some vengeance uh, among not only the home guard, but a lot of the other sort of plantation owners in the area that were inflicting a lot of racial and social injustice that was happening here. So it wasn't just about that personal infliction that had happened to his own family, but it was about okay. the racism that was happening here among the community. Women were being marginalized by um, members of the home guard and other uh, plantation owners. They were being victimized. Our kitchen gardens were being torn up. Um, our homes were being burned. I mean, it was just terrorism okay. on the landscape. Okay. I'm, I'm sorry, Nancy. So, yeah, and I, I really get this analogy of, of what we would consider by today's standards to be a social justice warrior. So um, in the interest of time, because we are going to have to take a break here in a, in a few more minutes, can you give us some, um, tell us, you know, how this all unfolded? Again, I understand more than 20 people in the end were ultimately killed during this, what, what's considered a war, this uh, uprising. Tell us how it all went down. So um, Henry and the gang were known to be nowhere and everywhere at the same time. Like I said, he did this with a lot of charisma, a lot of like guerrilla warfare, great knowledge of the landscape. And so they targeted these specific men and uh, that were either part of the home guard or have been inflicting a lot of bad things here. And they killed them. And or they inflict a lot of damage uh, to either their property or the people themselves to where it sent a message to don't mess with these Indians. You're not going to come into our community and continue to marginalize us. We're not. And we're how long did diplomacy. this? 
how long did mm-hmm. this occur, this, this, this war? Seven years. Started Seven in 1865, years. and it wrapped up in 1872 with the, um, we're not sure what happened. Either he died of a self-inflicted gunshot wound when he was cleaning a gun right just minutes after he had proposed to the gang to get out and, and uh, give everything a break for a little while, or he disappears. Um, and that's more of the likely scenario is that he staged his own death and that he disappeared. I do want to add that in terms of outlaws, that Henry had the largest bounty on his head of any outlaw in the United States uh, starting in 1866. Um, and it was when the uh, reward turned from alive to dead or alive is when uh, different uh, bounty hunters came here and started hunting them more, which made him want to abscond himself even more. Um, Do you know how much that bounty was at the time? Um, I think it was ten thousand dollars. Ten thousand dollars, and this would have been an eight- increase to starting about eighteen sixty-six. I think eighteen sixty-eight is when it went up to about fifteen thousand dollars in that money of the time, and that's when it got the attention of other people that came in and wanted to hunt him and other members of the gang, including his okay. wife, who I, I like to. Also okay. position Nancy, I'm sorry, we're, we're going to have to take a break here. So, But anyway, this is really, really insightful information, uh, something I'm just learning about for the first time today. Henry Lowry, a Lumbee individual, uh, social justice warrior of the day, outlaw, depending on probably what side of the issue you were on, but certainly, certainly a compelling narrative that we're hearing today from Nancy Lowry and uh, Nancy Fields. I'm sorry, but she is related to the Lowry's. Nancy, I knew I was going to do that. Nancy Fields. Folks, give us a call if you got a question or a comment. We'll be right back. As the Farm Bill reauthorization looms closer, Native food advocates are taking this opportunity to insert policy changes to strengthen food sovereignty and economy. Also, the recent Inflation Reduction Act promises millions of dollars to help tribal fisheries. That's on the next episode of The Menu on Native America Calling. Program support by Amerind. For 35 years, Indian Country has put its trust in Amerind, providing insurance coverage, strengthening Native American communities, Protecting tribal sovereignty and keeping dollars in Indian country are Amarin's priorities. More information on property, liability, workers' compensation, and commercial auto needs at Amarind.com. That's A-M-E-R-I-N-D.com. Thank you for listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're talking about historical Native outlaws today, but before we jump back into the conversation, we would like to thank everyone who called in yesterday to our show about NAGPRA updates. To join today's conversation about Henry Lowry, Cherokee Bill, and other Native outlaws, call us at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. We're speaking with Nancy Fields. She is a director and curator at the Museum of the Southeast American Indian in Pembroke, North Carolina. Nancy, I knew I was going to do it. I knew I was going to accidentally call you Lowry, but I know you are related to the Lowry family, so I feel like I, I, I'm going to be okay on that faux pas. But um, and unfortunately, Nancy, we just don't have a whole lot of time. We've got other guests, and we've got so many other figures that we want to learn about, but this is such a compelling story. I appreciate you uh, condensing it for us as, as much as possible. But before we move on, I do want to ask you 
Henry Lowry, he is a folk hero uh, among the Lumbee. And are there memorials and other public acknowledgments of his legacy in uh, Robson County? There are indeed. Uh, there are historic markers uh, throughout the community that uh, identify places where he was or events that happened. There's actually an outdoor drama called Strike at the Wind that is performed every summer. I invite everybody to come out and learn the story through the drama. Um, the History Ta Channel did a segment uh, that you can find online, and there are numerous books that are on Amazon. You can Google and uh, get more text about and learn more about the Lowry War. Nancy Field speaking with us from Pembroke, North Carolina. Folks, the number to call with a question or a comment about Native Outlaws today, 1-800-99-NATIVE. Give us a call. We've got another guest on the line right now. Joining us from Crescent, Oklahoma is John Anderson. He is an elder. He is Chairman Emeritus and Director at F&M Bank in Central Oklahoma. He is a citizen Potawatomi Nation tribal member. John, it's really, really a pleasure to have you on the show. Appreciate you joining us. Uh, you want me just to go into what I know about uh, my heritage? Yeah, yeah, John. I want to. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and let me just set the tone here. Your great grandfather was a lawman in Oklahoma Territory who was tragically killed and a shootout with a notorious gang of outlaws in 1890. And, and I really do appreciate your willingness to talk about this incident. And um, I understand you're 95 years old, so I just want to give you uh, some regard for that, for being an elder, um, age affluent like you are. And thank you for, for being willing to share this family history with us. And please tell us what led up to that murder of your great-grandfather. All right. Uh, be glad to... Uh... Uh, the the original John Anderson, uh, according to uh, the research that uh, that we've done in the family, came from Sweden. He landed in New Orleans and he worked his way up into the area around the Great Lakes. He was a blacksmith by trade, and he married into the Potawatomi tribe uh, uh, that was settled in uh, Indiana and Michigan and, and that area up there. He, uh, uh, when the uh, Indian Removal Act kicked into effect, uh, the Potawatomis were cousin tribes to the Ottawa and the Chippewa. And uh, a lot of the uh, members of the tribes did not want to be moved and, uh, by the Army. So they went across the border into Canada, a lot of them did. And the Canadian government let them do that. But the ones that were moved had been intermingling with the French for a couple of hundred years. And there's a lot of French blood in the tribes that was around the Great Lakes. They were first moved, like, to Council Bluffs, Iowa, and then uh, uh, down to uh, uh, Kansas. And then the last move they've made uh, was in about 1879. A lot of them sold uh, the land, their allotment in Kansas and uh, just moved everything they had down to what has now the Pottawatomie County in Oklahoma. The, uh, uh, they first settled around Wanad, Oklahoma, and uh, when the, uh, it was time for them to take their allotments, uh, 
John Anderson had two sons. He had Charles Anderson and uh, William Peter Anderson, both born in Kansas in 1845. And they were uh, uh, some of the original members that turned out to be the citizens uh, nation, Potawatomies, that came to Oklahoma. There are nine bands of Potawatomies scattered around Canada, the Great Lakes, and down here in Oklahoma. The Citizens National Band uh, has about 37,000 members now. When the uh, allotments were uh, given out, William Peter Anderson, which was one of the sons of John Anderson, uh, decided that uh, he had a, a wife that was Julia Hardin Anderson, and uh, uh, and they were living in the Wanted area at the time. And in 18, and uh, they developed a pretty large family, uh, but she died in childbirth about 1885. And so that uh, his children were uh, orphans when he was killed. The, uh, there was a, uh, a judge in Oklahoma gave uh, a sheriff the right to uh, go out and sign up uh, posse members. And they, so around Choctaw, he signed up uh, uh, William Peter Anderson, my great-grandfather, and uh, another uh, a uh, man around there named Frank Cook. William Peter Anderson, of course, was a part of me. Uh, and uh, when they, they signed him up, and uh, there, there, there was a gang, uh, the John Bly gang, that had been terrorizing uh, an area uh, in central Oklahoma. And so when they picked these, uh, my granddad up, uh, and he was he was living at the time east of Choctaw, uh, near the North Canadian River, and deputized them. Then uh, they started on east toward Hera to see if they could locate this John Bly. He'd been stealing cattle and this sort of thing. And uh, sure enough, they came up on the Bly gang that was killing uh, cattle. And what one of the things they did, they'd sell the uh, come back to Choctaw and sell the meat. Well, uh, as they walked up on them, the gang started shooting at them. And so a gun battle ensued, and uh, uh, William Peter, my great-grandfather, was killed during the battle. And another father of me uh, that lived in uh, Hera at the time, uh, Antoine, uh, uh, right, let's see, uh, uh, okay. Well, I can't think of his name, his last name right now, but he's another member of the party. I mean, he set up with the body of John Anderson, or William Peter Anderson, uh, to keep the animals away from it. The uh, And later, uh, John, they captured the John Bly uh, gang that day, and they were brought to trial. And John Bly was uh, sent to prison, and it's uh, my understanding that he eventually died in prison from what back then they called consumption, which is probably tuberculosis. And uh, Okay. Wow, wow. This is just a, a really fascinating story, John. And um, so uh, your family history is on the other side 
of uh, what we're talking about today, these native outlaws. And here your great grandfather was tragically murdered. And um, when, when did you first learn about this story, John? Have you always known it as a child that, that you had a, a relative who was a lawman that was involved in this prolific yeah, gunfight? Uh, of course, I lived with my granddad, who was the son of William Peter Anderson, for about five years. And uh, his death was discussed. And the amazing thing about this, not one of the seven children that uh, knew where he was buried nor where his wife was buried. And we have made repeated efforts down into uh, eastern Oklahoma County, and uh, which was where the killing took place, and to Pottawatomie County, trying to find their grave site and have been un unable to do so. And so we're we're still uh, we still uh, talk to some of the tribal members. Like there's a family called Harden, and I have an uncle that was named Bobby Harden Anderson. So uh, we're trying to uh, see if we can dig up some uh, information from the Harden family because Julia Harden uh, had a sister named Elizabeth, and. Uh, they both married uh, brothers, which was William Peter Anderson and and uh, Charles Anderson. So we've been trying to uh, see if we can find somebody from both of those families that could give us a clue as to the burial site. But uh, myself, uh, my oldest son, we've made trips to several cemeteries in, uh, down around Monette looking for uh, Julie Harden's. Uh, death place, and uh, and then uh, my dad and one of his uncles, which was the son of William Peter Anderson, also okay. made trips around trying to find the birth, uh, the death site or where they were buried. John, John, this is just uh, like I said earlier. This is just a really, really transfixing narrative that you're describing. And uh, I'm sorry, we do have a caller that we need to take, and we've got uh, some other guests we're going to learn about. But again, folks, this is John Anderson. He is a 95 year old elder in Crescent, Oklahoma, and he's describing uh, a tragic situation uh, in which his great grandfather was in a shootout with the, the notorious Bly Gang in uh, what was then Oklahoma Territory. We've got Michael listening in Anchorage, Alaska on KNBA. Michael, thanks for calling in today. Yes, good morning, my brother. How are you? I'm doing well, Michael. Thank you, brother. Yeah, yeah. So, I, you know, I tuned in a little bit late, and I, so I don't know what's been said. So if I start going on material that you've already covered, just stop me and I'll just move on. But first of all, I wanted to say how much my heart soars to hear the subject of this program. You know, one of the things about your program is that you bring to light uh, information that people just don't know about, you know, the native, the indigenous Americans. And, uh, and this is really important right now. Uh, things are changing really quickly. What can I say? So anyway, I would suggest that uh, you are talking about not just Native American outlaws, but Native American heroes. You know, okay. uh, one, one man's meat is another man's poison. You know, who, who, the, the, the label outlaw is not one that we gave them, if you can okay. catch my drift. 
Absolutely. Yeah. And Michael, thanks for calling in. I think that's a really good point and, and we need to address it. And I also appreciate uh, your warm words of support for Native America calling. And let's go ahead and let Nancy respond to that because Nancy, um, let, my, again, this is a really important aspect of this conversation, and we really need to think about where do these figures, whether we call them outlaws, whether we call them warriors, as Michael suggests, that we're talking about today, where do they sit in relation to the legacies of, of people that I think we all agree are venerated historical figures in Native American history, such as Sitting Bull and Chief Joseph and Crazy Horse. As contemporary Native people, is it appropriate for us to celebrate their legacies or should we proceed with caution? What are your thoughts on that? Right, and I, I think that that answer really does situate in the legacies, right? What are the outcomes that subsequent generations have experienced from their actions? And for a long time, uh, particularly with Lumbee people um, and Tuscarora people, we had um, difficulty reconciling the violence, the loss of life, and how that went against the grain of our values. Um, however, there was also the real, you know, I'm going to call it a benefit of um, the, the, the subjugation and the violence against us almost absolutely went away. And the reputation that kind of landed on us by virtue of, of Henry and the gang was that we weren't a people to be messed with. And so it gave us some breath to um, just to, to exist, right? And so I think from there, you know, UNCP is one of the things that was realized as part of the legacy of creating a school for Indian people to receive an education, something that wasn't accessible to us. And we know that that was kind of built on the, I'm going to call it awareness, that Henry and the gang created. So um, I think the legacy and the outcomes are where people reconcile the actions of these people. Um, and we also know that the human existence is not um, easy, right? Mm -hmm. and, and so we just have to take the best from those situations that we can um, and also – yeah, and really look at, you know, when he, he said about a hero, this is a person that stood up and fought for what he believed in. Okay. All right. Thank you for, for adding that insight into our conversation today, Nancy. Uh, really, really important uh, thing to consider for all of us. And let's learn about another prolific Native American, whether you want to call him a warrior, whether you want to call him an outlaw. Uh, that's for you to decide, but this is our next guest coming on now. Joining us from California is Matthew Leas Sr. He's an elder and a member of the Cultural Conservancy. He's Chimuevi. Matthew, you've also been on our show before. Welcome back. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Now, you are out there in the western part of the United States, uh, Lake Havasu area, now, please tell us about this mysterious figure, Willie Boy, whose renegade lifestyle in the early 1900s was connected to his love for a woman, if I'm not mistaken. Where was he from? Actually, he uh, came from here at uh, what is now the Chimwebe Indian Reservation. And uh, the reservation was established in 1907, and Chimwebees were here and migrated all over Southern California. And had family relations in the 29 Palms area, the Coachella, uh, Morongo, and San Bernardino. And uh, there were two other groups of our people out west, the 29 Palms Band, the Mission Indians, and another group named the Paiuchis from um, 
San Bernardino and up along the uh, Mojave River at a place called the Narrows. And and Willie Boy meandered out west to be with family and fell in love with a beautiful relative and that was forbidden in our culture because of the bloodline relationship. And and, and the father didn't appreciate Willie Boy uh courting his daughter and, and uh what happened was a confrontation and and uh the death of Carlotta's uh father by Willie Boy. Willie Boy, uh out there in California. We're learning more about him now from Matthew Levis Senior. Uh, really interesting conversation we're having today. Really interesting show. I know we've got more callers on the line. We've got more guests. So please, folks, stay with us. If you've got a question, 1-800-996-2848. What do you think? Are these warriors? Are these noble figures in our history as Native American people? Or are they outlaws? We're waiting for your calls. Call us, 1-800-996-2848. We'll be right back. Program support by the Colorado Plateau Foundation, a Native-led foundation supporting Native-led initiatives, protecting the lands, waters, and cultures of the Plateau for generations to come. The Colorado Plateau Foundation helps to build networks, community, and organizational capacity. The Colorado Plateau Foundation is accepting grant proposals through September 1st. Eligibility information is available at coloradoplateaufoundation.org. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're talking about historic Native outlaws today. What do you think about these polarizing figures we're talking about? Should we celebrate their legacies or be critical of their renegade lifestyles? Still time to join us, 1-800-996-2848. We're speaking now with Matthew Labus, and he is telling the story of Willie Boy. And Matthew, he, Willie Boy was out there in California in the early 1900s. And when, before we went to break, you were explaining that he fell in love with a woman whose father didn't approve of their relationship. An altercation ensued. Uh, this father uh, ended up dead. Willie Boy... What happened next? Well, next comes the uh, infamous uh, manhunt of Willie Boy and Carlotta, who fled uh, into the desert. And uh, that's where the manhunt took place. And, you know, the story goes on and on, and you hear different interpretations of it. And and, uh, after we had worked on uh, the movie with uh, Jason Momoa, uh, many of the Akawiyas, uh start coming forth and, and telling stories about a connection with Willie Boy and Carlotta back in the day. But uh, these were untold stories. But anyway, the the matter was that uh, Willie Boy and Carlotta were hunted by the posse and, and um, gunfight ensued. Uh, Carlotta was killed and, and Willie Boy uh, fled. And as a young child, uh, we have heard these stories uh, from our elders that Willie Boy did get away and uh, that he apparently uh, found a way out uh, and jumped uh, a freight in Barstow and wound up in Needles and came back to Chimway Valley and then wound up uh, back at uh, Pahrump for doctoring. And uh, apparently he, he had 
become very sick with tuberculosis and, and uh, went to Purim as a place of healing. And, and uh, from there, they couldn't help him too much. And uh, he, he was sent off and he passed at a sanatorium somewhere in Nevada. So that was the about, demise of uh, Willie Boy. That was the demise. And about what time was this that he passed away then? This was in uh, 1909, and, and uh, you know, he, he led him on a long manhunt with Carlotta, and he ran the desert, and, and he knew the desert. And, uh, you know, the Chimwaves, we are uh, actually southern Paiute and migrated from Mount Charleston, and we are uh, part of the greater uh, Nuwavi bands of uh, Arizona, California, Utah, Nevada, and, and we became known as the Chimwabies when we settled here along the Colorado River and, and uh, took on the name. Uh, and translation was Atsumawev, and that was uh, running like a roadrunner. And then the reason why that story came about was told by our elders that when the New World came to this area of the Colorado River, they were hungry, tired, thirsty, and along the river banks they saw the honey mesquite uh, beans ready for harvest that they ran, and, their, and in their excitement and jubilation, uh, they they ran down towards the river, and they were, they described them as running like roadrunners with their heads down, and noses in the air, and so the, they referred to him as, as Tumawev, and when the Mojave people picked up on us and our presence, it was changed to a Tumawev to meet their tongue. And okay. eventually, in, in time, it was changed to Chimuevi by, by the Spaniards who encountered our people. Okay. And Matthew, going back to, to William, and thank you for that history, um, Chimuevi history there, but um, you are a consultant at this upcoming movie you mentioned with Jason Momoa, who will star as Willie Boy. Now, do you feel that this will be an accurate depiction of his life? Yes, I do. Yes, I certainly do. And um, I, I've known... Uh, the author of, of the book, uh, Dr. Trasser, for many years, and I know he's worked with the Chimwevi elders over time, uh, recording oral history, and uh, many of these stories have, have come forth, and uh, he wrote the book, and, and this is what uh, the movie was based on, his research. But uh, even after the movie came out, uh, the family of Willie Boy contacted me and and um, told me that his name was actually Willie Bo from the Bo family from uh, Moapa, Nevada and and the Bo family was really appreciative of this that you know I invited them to the premiere and uh, they came and, and enjoyed it and uh, respected the work that was done but it, it told a, a Chimwebe story rather than uh, a fictional story based on uh, non-Indian accounts. We're speaking with Matthew Levis Sr. He's a consultant to this new movie, Willie Boy, starring Jason Momoa. And uh, we do want to provide some disclosure. We did reach out to the 29 Palms Band of Mission Indians and received an email this morning, and it stated that the story of Willie Boy is often misrepresented, and the tribe is still reconciling with that story. Let's move along now. We've got our fourth guest on the line in Chicago, Illinois, Art T. Burton. He is an author and historian. Art, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. 
Art, um, the Rufus Butt Gang, an infamous outlaw group with some native members. What can you tell us about the Rufus Butt Gang? Uh, the Rufus Buck Gang uh, was on, you know, the run in the eighteen mid eighteen nineties. They followed Cherokee Bill's reign, but uh, Rufus Buck was a Uchi. His father was a Uchi. His mother was an African American. He had a gang of uh, two Creek freedmen. Well, one Seminole freedman and a Creek freedman and two Creek Indians. They went on a thirteen day of uh, terror of rape, pillage, and murder in the Creek Nation, turned the Creek Nation pretty much upside down in 1895, and uh, they were finally captured uh, where they were cornered by the uh, Indian police and the deputy marshals, and they were all taken to Fort Smith in Arkansas, which was the federal court for the Indian Territory, and they were all executed on the same day, and they were all 19 years of age. Uh, but the Rufus Buck Gang, and they said they they was upset with white folks and the and the Dawes Commission that was, you know, doing the allotments in the Indian Territory. But they were pretty pretty rough gang of boys. Now, it, it sounds like it. And art were these victims? Were these uh, Native people that were victims, or were they white victims? Both. Um, they they killed after they got to killing folks. They they were killing. Uh, Anybody that they came across that they didn't like. And, okay. And, uh, so, yeah, they, I just want to interject here quickly, Art, um, Art. So, you know, we're talking, you know, some of these figures, there's a question are they heroes? Were they warriors? Were they criminals or outlaws? Uh, the Rufus Buck Gang, what's your assessment? Criminals or uh, heroes? They, they were criminals for the most part. Uh, you can look at somebody like Ned Christie who had a five-year war with the federal government. He was a statesman and uh, had come from the Cherokee Nation, and he was against encroachment. He can be looked at as a patriot, and he's seen as a Cherokee patriot. And he didn't. He was accused of killing the deputy marshal that they later found out years later that he didn't kill. But he would nick. Uh, he was such a shot, good shot with the rifle that he would nick a uh, lawman who was chasing him, and they finally uh, cornered him and burned down his cabin and killed him in 1893, I believe. But uh, he was more of a, a patriot. Uh, Cherokee Bill was more of a classic outlaw. He was a Cherokee freedman. Uh, somebody asked him about his heritage. He said he was one-half Indian, one-half white, one-half Negro. But he stuck up trains, banks, and stagecoaches. He shot the rifle like the rifleman on TV to scare people. And uh, he loved to have shootouts with the, with the you know, lawmen. He became the most famous outlaw in history in Indian Territory. And he's pretty much what uh, Hollywood has tried to make Billy the Kid up to be. But Cherokee Bill was, was a dangerous cat. Yeah, he sounds like a, a really, really over-the-top character. Now, Cherokee Bill, were there any political motivations to to his crimes, or was he just pretty much out there for himself? I think he was, uh, you know, the the Indian Territory with the Dawes Commission, it kind of, uh, kind of uh, shook up the Indian, because they had sovereign Indian nations in the five tribes, Cherokee, Choctaw, Chickasaw Creek, and Seminole. And the Dawes Commission kind of made stuff, uh, 
you know, un- uneven to a great extent. So there may have been some political machinations that was going on, but Cherokee Bill, I would say he was an outlaw, and he, he had a real uh, thing about, uh, you know, they said he may have killed up, what, between 6 and, and 13 people during his, his run, and he was a bad dude. So I wouldn't say he was political like Ned Christie was. Uh, he was more of an outlaw, classic outlaw. A classic outlaw, as you describe it, just a, a bad dude. And it's really interesting, Art, what you're describing and, and what some of our other guests are describing, this period of history uh, with the racial tensions, land disputes, government encroachment, it really does align with so much of what we as Native people were facing during those eras. And, and these were some individuals just just took some different paths during that during that time from from the history historical characters that we ordinarily read about in history books and we learn about as Native American people. And this is really fascinating. And, and Art, I want to ask you, because a lot of this really ties into this love affair that Americans have with outlaws. And I think as Native people, we're not immune to that. What do you think drives that, that interest and that fascination with people that live outside of the law? And Because and anybody who's ever been a victim of a violent crime knows it is, it is not a fun situation. But we love to read stories. We love to watch them movies we love to hear about it what, what's driving that yeah that's a, that's a good question i think that um the american public you know uh they love outlaws like jesse james or butch cassidy uh billy the kid i don't know if they've they've, they've romanticized them i mean we could take a look at a cherokee outlaw named henry star henry star is not that well known but henry star robbed more banks than any outlaw in the history of the wild west and he started on horseback and, and went from horseback to automobile. He was the first outlaw to rob a bank. He was an automobile. And he was killed, you know, uh, robbing a bank in Arkansas. But uh, it, it's, it's you know, it, it, people love outlaws in, in the United States for, you know, some reason. You know, a lot of times, too, the outlaws were seen to be fighting big, uh, big you know, business like the banks and the railroads that were, uh, usurping land or, or taking land away from, you know, the small man. And so some of that probably came into play. But I really don't know why they, you know, worship outlaws the way they do in this country. Now, Art, on the other side of this issue, uh, were there also Native lawmen working during this period of what we kind of think of as the Wild West? Yeah, very famous. I mean, if you look at the Indian Territory, which is now the state of Oklahoma, that was where the largest number of deputies marshals were killed in the land of duty, over 120. In the Indian Territory also, you had the United States Indian Police. And the first uh, captain was Sam Sixkiller, who became very famous. And uh, he, he did a lot of work in terms of, of trying to bring law and order to the Indian Territory. And he was followed by Charles LaFleur, who was a Choctaw. He was an, another captain. Another captain was Jackson Ellis, who was a Cherokee. And these guys were legendary in terms of what they were able to do in the Indian Territory as lawmen. And the last captain was John West, who was a Cherokee. Uh, but, but you know, they became legendary. Sam Sixkiller has had some books written about him. I wrote about him in my first book, which was uh, Black, Red, and Deadly, Black and Indian Gunfighters of the Indian Territory. Uh, but many of them, you know, need to have books written about their careers and what they did, and they were outstanding. 
All right, it seems like some of these folks are, are, are kind of in that middle area where we think of them as, as being warriors, uh, having a, a sense of duty to their people, and then others seem to be more just self-invested in their own efforts. And, and what do you think as Native people now looking back, uh, here it is, 2022, what do we really need to understand about these figures that we're learning about today in our history? Well, I think that the lawmen, the Native Americans who were outstanding lawmen, and, and many of them got, you know, dad in the land of duty, need to be honored and respected for what they tried to do. Uh, those Native Americans who were patriots, you know, uh, fighting against illegal type of machinations of uh, local government or federal government should also be honored and respected for what they did. But I think that the, there were many of the Native Americans who were federal lawmen and did a great job in the Wild West, and they should definitely be remembered for what they did, such as James Neckethead, who was killed in the line of duty. He was hunting down train robbers in the Indian Territory, and he was killed in the line of duty. Actually, Sam Sixkiller wasn't killed in the line of duty, but he was killed on Christmas Eve in Muskogee uh, in the Creek Nation by some outlaws. But, uh, yeah, I think that these people need to be uh, recognized and, and, you know, honored for what they did. We're speaking with Art T. Burton, and he's in Chicago, Illinois, and he's uh, giving us a really riveting account of the Rufus Butt Gang, Cherokee Bill, and, and some of these prolific Native American lawmen that were also out there during this turbulent period of history, both for Native American people and the rest of the United States and what we think of the Wild West era. Really, really, really fun conversation, but also a serious conversation. And uh, we want to thank all of our guests that joined us today, sharing their insights, sharing their family history in some cases telling these stories that we don't hear every day in Native America. I also want to thank our callers today. And if you're one of the folks that we weren't able to get to you on the line, we do apologize, but it's been a busy show today. Uh, again, a very enlightening conversation about Native outlaws, Native warriors, Native lawmen from history. Join us on Native America Calling again tomorrow for an episode of our ongoing series, The Menu. It's going to be hosted by Andy Murphy. I'm Sean Spruce. Thank you for listening. My name is Asad. When I was 19, my mom was diagnosed with colorectal cancer because she smoked. My tip is find things to be thankful for. I'm thankful she quit smoking. I'm thankful for the nurses who taught me how to check her IV and to manage her medication. And I'm thankful for every day we have together because nothing is guaranteed, especially for us. The people you love are worth quitting for. You can quit. For free help, call 1-800-QUIT-NOW. A message from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. If you're hurting in your relationship or have been affected by sexual violence, StrongHeart's Native Helpline is a no-charge, 24-7, confidential and anonymous domestic, dating, and sexual violence helpline for Native Americans. Help is available by calling 1-844-7-NATIVE or by clicking on the chat icon on strongheartshelpline.org. This program is supported by Stronghearts Native Helpline. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Quantic Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. 
Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.